Well, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, where our passage this morning will cover verses 1 to 14. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 and going to verse 14. Let's, let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching Him carefully. And behold, there was a man before Him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then He took Him and healed Him and sent Him away. And He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when He noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by Him. And He who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the fact that You are a God who has not remained silent. You have revealed Yourself very clearly in the person and work of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have revealed Yourself, Father, in the Word written for us in the Old and New Testaments. And our confidence, Father, is that every word from the Lord proves true. So we devote ourselves on this Lord's Day to hearing from Your Word. We need life for our souls, Father. We believe that You give it through Your Word. Our faith needs to be strengthened. We believe that that strength comes through Your Word. Our hearts need to be encouraged, Father. We believe that that strength, that encouragement comes through Your Word. Father, help us today to humble ourselves under Your Word. I pray for grace, Lord, to speak things that are true and faithful and accurate and in accordance with the Scriptures. We pray for Your Holy Spirit to bear fruit. We ask all these things, Father, for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, it's common nowadays to say that we live in a secular age. And in many ways, that statement is true. Commitment to organized religion is at an all-time low, at least in our country. And people are increasingly resistant to any sort of revealed truth that would demand their allegiance. And so in that sense, it's true to say that we are living in a secular age. The hallmarks are all around us. 
And yet, at the same time, our secular age also evidences growing interest in spirituality. For example, did you know that 28% of Americans in 2020 said that their number one goal for the year was to increase their personal spiritual growth? That's a fascinating goal for an admittedly secular culture, and it demonstrates my point. While secularity is on the rise, so too is interest in spirituality. In fact, this combination has created a new label. We love labels, don't we? We want to put labels on everything. We've made up a new label, secular spirituality. Yes, that's a thing. That probably sounds strange to your ears. It certainly sounds strange to mine ears. Here's how one writer describes secular spirituality. Quote, it brings heaven down to earth and encourages everyone to be their own priest. It bows in a gesture of wonder and awe, but not to any god or deity. Close quote. So there you have it. Secular spirituality. I hope you heard the emphasis on the self in that description. The self. Everyone gets to be their own priest, the writer said. You could even say this is the great commandment of secular spirituality. You shall pursue yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall not allow your neighbor's views to infringe upon you. That's the heartbeat of our age where I am the source of all spiritual reality. Indeed, the hallmark of secular spirituality is not that everyone gets to be their own priest, it's that everyone becomes his or her own God. And it's here that we begin to see why convictional Christianity, and yes, I'm trying to make up my own phrase there, and I want you to remember it, convictional Christianity, it's here that we see why convictional Christianity is out of step with our secular age. At the heart of the Christian faith is the affirmation that we believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. Christianity begins, in other words, with the authority of the triune God, an authority to which we must submit ourselves. To seek God, you must do so on His terms, not your own. To seek God, you must die to yourself, not pursue yourself. And that's the rub between convictional Christianity and secular spirituality. By all means, we should bow in wonder as that secularly spiritual writer said, but we bow in wonder to God as He defines Himself, not as we define Him. To seek the things of God, then, the Bible demands that we do so on God's terms, not our own terms. And that brings us to Luke chapter 14. You may be asking yourself, what does secular spirituality have to do with Jewish religious leaders and a controversy on the Sabbath? And the answer is, quite a lot, actually. It's true that the Pharisees were not infected with the same mindset as our day, but their root problem was the same. The root problem was the same. The Jewish religious leaders were committed to pursuing God, but only on their terms. At the core, that's why they opposed Jesus. 
It's not that they doubt His miracles or they can't understand His teaching. The religious leaders oppose Jesus because they don't want to submit their spirituality to His supremacy. They refuse to admit that Jesus' authority far surpasses anything they can claim for themselves. And that's why they oppose Jesus. Because they will not seek God's kingdom on God's terms. In that sense, the religious leaders in Luke 14 and our secular age are actually quite similar. The root problem is the same. Both evidence humanity's natural inclination to make ourselves the source of spiritual truth rather than God. And that reveals the value of this text for our day. It would be easy to dismiss this passage as as having nothing to say to a world like ours, and that would be the wrong conclusion. As we witness Jesus correct the religious leaders, we are hearing His correction to our age as well. And at the core, that correction is this. To seek God and His kingdom, you must do so on God's terms, not your own. And God's terms are defined by Jesus Christ. Of course, what does that look like in in detail? That's where our exposition comes in. As we study this passage here, you can break it down in terms of three corrections from Jesus to both the religious leaders and to our day. If we want to seek God's kingdom on God's terms, what does that look like? That's what Jesus is about to tell us. So let's note what He has to say. Three corrections. The first comes in verses 1-6. to To seek God's kingdom, you must submit to the authority of Jesus. To seek God's kingdom, you must submit to the authority of Jesus. The setting for the scene is described in verse 1 as Jesus is invited to a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. This dinner party is actually the setting for the next several scenes, all the way through verse 24. So it's a significant evening, at least in Luke's presentation of Jesus' ministry. And while a dinner invitation normally implies a pleasant evening, this meal will be anything less than pleasant. Notice again the tone of verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching Him carefully. That doesn't sound friendly, does it? That's because it's not friendly. It's suspicious. It's malicious. It's looking for a reason to criticize Jesus. They're watching Him suspiciously. In fact, it's the same word that was used back in chapter 6 to describe a similar situation, a healing on the Sabbath. Luke chapter, chapter 6, verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Him so that they might find a reason to accuse Him. So two different Sabbaths, the same attitude from the Pharisees. They're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So, when a man with dropsy shows up in verse 2, it's natural to wonder... Did the Pharisees orchestrate this entire situation as a way to trap Jesus? Did they pick out the Sabbath day on purpose in order to see how Jesus would respond to this man with a medical condition? That's the tone of the the entire evening. They're watching Him. They're suspicious. They're malicious. They're watching Him to see what He'll do. Now, I've already mentioned the connection with 
that earlier Sabbath controversy in chapter 6. And that similarity is the key to interpreting these verses. Both the Pharisees' attitude and Jesus' response are very similar to the previous encounters. They're almost the same verbatim. Notice, for example, Jesus' response in verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? That's very similar to the question Jesus asked in chapter 6. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? And notice the Pharisees' response, or we should say their non-response, verse 4. But they remained silent. Again, just the same thing that happened in chapter 6. They refused to answer Jesus' question. Why won't they answer Him? Well, in part because Jesus has backed them into a corner. You don't ever want to get in a debate with Jesus. He will win. If they say, yes, it is lawful to heal, then why are they watching Him carefully? And why does their tradition prohibit them to heal on the Sabbath? If they say, no, it's not lawful to heal, then why are they opposed to showing mercy on the day that God designed to be merciful to people? You see, they have to remain silent because there's no way out. Jesus has exposed them. He's, he's trapped them again, just like He did back in chapter 6. The similarities are all there. And the similarities continue. The replay keeps going, you might say. After Jesus heals the man in verse 4, which notice is almost an afterthought. He heals him and He sends him away. That's, that's all you get. After He heals the man, Jesus asks them another question. Verse 5, And He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Friends, that's very similar to what Jesus just asked one chapter earlier. In chapter 13, remember the woman with the disabling spirit who comes to the Sabbath and Jesus heals her on the Sabbath? And remember the synagogue ruler who said, there are six other days that you can be healed. Come on that day. It's the same question. Jesus is making the same point here that He made then. And the point is this, the Pharisees have a double standard. They'll show compassion when it's in their own interest. So why not now? You see what Jesus is doing with the repetition? He's exposing that they actually know the answer to His question. They know what the answer is. In other words, the issue has nothing to do with the Sabbath. The issue has everything to do with the authority of Jesus. The authority that they will not submit to. So you could say at this point that the Pharisees have learned nothing from their earlier encounters with Jesus. There's been no self-examination. There's certainly been no repentance. There's been no change. That's why Luke includes these remarkably similar scenes. The repetition is telling us these men have learned nothing. And the end of the exchange makes this point abundantly clear. Notice verse 6. And they could not reply to these things. Now, that's an interesting way for Luke to say it. They could not answer these things. What is Luke getting at? It's that Jesus' wisdom has so far surpassed the Pharisees, they literally have no response. He has confounded them. His insight, His authority, and His wisdom are so far beyond what they possess, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can say. 
And that circles it back to verse 1 and kind of closes the loop on this controversy. Think about it for a second, how it all loops back together. The religious leaders invited Jesus because they want to pick at Him. They want to criticize Him. And that's precisely where they go wrong. This is not a man to be debated with. This is the man to whom you must submit. You don't get to argue with Jesus and try to make Him fit your understanding. No, you shift your understanding to fit what is true about Him. That's really the point of this final Sabbath controversy. This is the last time they argue with Jesus about the Sabbath. And the point is just this. They've learned nothing. They keep looking for a debate. But by doing so, they fail to offer the response that is necessary. Submission. Submit to this man. Don't argue with him. Friends, that correction of the religious leaders is the correction for our day as well. To seek God and His kingdom, the first step, the non-negotiable beginning point, is submission to the authority of Jesus. There is no true spirituality, to use that popular phrase, apart from the confession that Jesus gets to set the terms. Jesus defines truth. Jesus is the authority over God's kingdom. Jesus is the source of all revelation when it comes to spirituality. The Pharisees wouldn't submit to that and therefore they missed the kingdom of God and many people in our day are on the same path. For Christians then, this means that we need to recover we need to recover the vital importance of being consistently and publicly committed to the Scriptures. Remember, the authority of Jesus Christ today is expressed in and through the Word of God, the Bible. So to submit to the authority of Jesus, we must submit ourselves to the authority of the Scriptures. In fact, it's a good rule of thumb. If you meet someone who professes to be a Christian and yet does not submit to the Bible, there is reason enough to believe that they may not be a Christian. To submit to the authority of Jesus means to submit to the authority of the Scriptures. But sadly, this is something that the church in our day has lost sight of. Part of the reason that secular spirituality is so potent and plausible is because the church has gone along with the idea that we can set the terms for coming to God. The church has gone along with that idea. Think of how easily churches and Christians treat the Bible like a cafeteria line of spiritual truth. Think of how often we treat the Bible like we're going through a buffet line. I'll take a little bit of this truth because it works for me. I like those psalms that say that God is near to me, but I'll pass on things like repentance and judgment and holiness because that's not really fitting my taste Friends, that's functionally, functionally the same attitude that the religious leaders are displaying at this dinner party. We want God, but not on those terms. We want God, but we get to say how. It's functionally the same attitude. And so we need to recover this basic confession as a church that we don't get to set the terms on knowing God. 
To say it a different way, Jesus does not submit to you. You submit to Him. And what He says, you do. And when you don't understand what He says, you submit your understanding to His. Jesus does not conform to our expectations. We submit to Him in and through His Word. So practically speaking, one of the most important things you and I can do as Christians in this crazy culture is to make it very clear that our lives are submitted to the Bible. If you live a distinctly Christian life, there will be numerous opportunities for people to say, I don't get why you do that. Why do you do that? Or why do you not do this? And what I'm saying is at that moment, at that moment you should say, because of the Bible. And make clear that we're submitted to the Scriptures. To say it another way, we as a church need to be more clear, not less, about our submission to what God says is good and beautiful and true. Of course, we do that with as much wisdom and winsomeness as we can muster. Submission to Scripture doesn't equate with being shrill and caustic, but it does equate with being clear. Friends, that ought to be the heartbeat of our testimony as Christians and as a church. We want to make it more clear, not less, that we're seeking God on His terms. And that begins personally, or at least it should. Each one of us ought to be asking regularly for God to show us where we are not living in submission to the Scriptures. In fact, let's just get this acknowledgement out of the way right now. Every one of us in here has an area of life where we are not submitting to the authority of Jesus as we ought. That's true for every person in this room in one way or another. So let's just get that acknowledgement out of the way. That's the facts on the ground. (laughs) All of us. Okay, with that admission in mind, let's ask God to shape us according to His Word. Let's ask for the humility to be quick to repent And let's ask for the grace to remember that a counter-cultural witness in our day begins exactly at this point in submission to the authority of Jesus in His Word. To seek God's kingdom, you must do what the Pharisees would not, and that is submit to the authority of Jesus. That's correction number one. As we look back to the dinner party, in chapter 14 we see that it keeps going. Jesus has another correction. In verses 7 to 11, He addresses the guests at the party and they get a correction too. It's this, to seek God's kingdom, you must embrace the wisdom of humility. To seek God's kingdom, you must embrace the wisdom of humility. Now, what prompts Jesus to speak at this point is the evident pride of the people coming to this party. Verse 7 states it clearly. Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when He noticed how they chose the places of honor. So you can imagine the scene. People are arriving at the party and as they come in, folks are choosing the best seats for themselves, namely those seats that are closest to the host. Nobody wants to be on the outskirts of the conversation, right? So people are angling to be seen. They're angling to be noticed. They're angling to be up front. And it takes some level of pride to do that. You have to think pretty highly of yourself to choose the best seat. This is not the first time 
Jesus has addressed the pride of the Pharisees. Remember back in chapter 11, he pronounced a warning to the Pharisees on precisely this point. Chapter 11, verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Once again, then, it appears the religious leadership of Israel has not learned anything from their previous encounters with Jesus. Pride. Pride continues to be their mode of operating. But in this instance, Jesus uses an illustration. Luke calls it a parable to demonstrate the danger of unchecked pride. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus envisions an embarrassing social disaster. Notice what he says, verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So, Jesus' point is straightforward. If you pridefully assume the best seat is for you, then you run the risk of being publicly embarrassed when you find out that that seat was not for you. It's an outworking of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, isn't it? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's the danger. Jesus warns about the outcome of pride. The alternative, however, is the way of wisdom, or we might say the wisdom of humility. Notice verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of of all who sit at table with you. Now, some people might say that Jesus is simply being shrewd here, that he's giving a more effective strategy for social advancement, but that's a cynical reading of the text that says more about you than it does about the passage. Rather, Jesus is not giving it a more effective strategy for social advancement. Rather, his point is about the wisdom of humility. And you could put it pretty simply like this. In God's economy, it's wise to live humbly. In God's economy, it's wise to live humbly. Again, Jesus is simply echoing the Proverbs here. He's he's simply echoing the Proverbs. This time, chapter 3, verse 34. To the humble, God gives favor. And that, friends, is really what this exchange is all about. That's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders don't understand. Their approach to all of life, including where to sit at a dinner party, runs counter to the wisdom of God. Everything about life that the religious leadership is doing runs counter to the wisdom of God. They're missing the point. And in this instance, it's pride that blinds them. They're missing the point about all of life. This this is key, friends. Jesus is not merely giving life tips in this parable. He's getting to the heart of the matter that they're missing. If the Pharisees want to seek the kingdom of God, then it will require a fundamental reshaping of how they think about all of life, including themselves. It's more than life tips. And we know that this is what Jesus is getting at by what He says in verse 11. Here we learn that Jesus is thinking about more than social etiquette. He's thinking about the kingdom of God. Notice what He says, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, this is the foundation of the parable. This is the point that the Pharisees miss. In God's kingdom, the path to glory runs through humility. In fact, Jesus just made this point in the last chapter, Luke chapter 13. Do you remember the conclusion to Jesus' teaching on the narrow door? He, would des- he was describing who would sit at the table in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said it was the last who would be first, while the first would be last. Do you see the connection then with verse 11 in this passage? Jesus is teaching about the way to enter the kingdom of God. It's not life tips about a dinner party. It's about how you get into the kingdom of God. The path to glory runs through humility. If you insist on your own way, your own effort, your own exaltation, then God will humble you on the last day. But if you humble yourself, trusting that only God can bring you to His kingdom and to His table, then on the last day, you will be exalted. Not by your own effort, not by choosing the best seat for yourself, but by God's grace in Christ that exalts the lowly. It's about how to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, I cannot overstate how central this truth is to Jesus' ministry. It is easy to think that this passage is just, we breeze past it, it's just another Sabbath controversy. This actually gets to the heart of what Jesus proclaims in His ministry. In God's kingdom, the path to glory runs through humility. It is, this is central to Luke's entire project in the book. In fact, this truth, this truth has been the theme of Luke's Gospel since the very beginning, since chapter 1. You may not remember it because it's easy to forget. It was 14 chapters ago. But Mary herself, Mary, Jesus' mother, in her magnificent song, proclaimed this same truth. Luke chapter 1, verse 52. Mary sang that God brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted who? Those of humble estate. Friends, that's just the same way as saying for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the same, it's the same message. This is essential to understanding the good news of the kingdom of God. To seek God's kingdom, you must embrace the wisdom of humility and specifically, the wisdom of humility means you confess that you don't deserve any seat at God's table, let alone the place of honor. Instead, humility is expressed through faith. It's a humble trust that if I'm going to sit at the table in the kingdom, it will only be because Christ Himself has brought me to the feast. That His sacrifice has paid my cost. That His worthiness is now shared with me through faith in the Gospel. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, I pray that you hear the call of God's kingdom In this passage, these verses are more than a simple dinner party. It's more than a lesson on how to avoid social embarrassment. Through this parable, Jesus is calling you to the humility of faith. You cannot save yourself. You cannot seat yourself at the table in God's kingdom. You cannot earn salvation through your own decision and through your own effort. If you try to put yourself in the seat of honor, then God on the last day will say you have to go lower. It's only by putting yourself lower through faith that God exalts those who do not deserve exaltation. 
To say it a different way, salvation is a gift of grace. A place at God's table is something only He can provide. And He has provided that place through the death and resurrection of His Son. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, then hear this good news. You cannot save yourself. You cannot bring yourself into the kingdom of God. But God, in His grace, will bring you in through the humility of faith in His Son. Through the confession that I cannot save myself. To seek God's kingdom, you must embrace the wisdom of humility. And I pray that by the Spirit, God would give that kind of faith this morning. That's correction number two. The emphasis on the kingdom of God carries on into the last correction. This time from verses 12 to 14. To seek God's kingdom you must live for the promise of the last day. To seek God's kingdom, you must live for the promise of the last day. Again, Jesus shifts His attention. You can see it in verse 12. He moves from addressing the guests to addressing the host. Notice what He says, verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner party or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now that's a lot to take in, but you could just summarize it like this. Don't associate only with people who can pay you back. Don't build relationships only with those who can be a benefit to you down the road. Don't associate only with people who can pay you back. Why not? Because it takes no grace to live with that kind of quid pro quo mindset. It takes no grace. Instead, Jesus says we ought to serve those who cannot pay us back. Notice verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So, this is the alternative to living a self-focused, self-serving life. Citizens of God's kingdom ought to prioritize serving the least of these. This is very similar to what Jesus said back in chapter 6, right before He instructed His disciples to love their enemies. And that's really what Jesus is getting at in these instructions. Citizens of God's kingdom live in this world in a way that demonstrates they don't belong to this world. Let me say that again. Citizens of God's kingdom live in this world in a way that demonstrates they don't belong to this world. This is how we testify that our citizenship is in heaven. By living on earth in a way that makes clear our treasure is not here, but with Christ in the heavenly places. That's why we can give away all that we have. That's why we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because I'm not actually losing anything. Of course, that's a difficult way to live, isn't it? It's much easier to live for earthly treasure. It's much easier to live a comfortable, easy life. It's much easier to focus on the kinds of relationships that provide some sort of earthly payoff. This is hard, in other words. Which raises a question. This is the question that you should be asking. How can anyone possibly live this way? If I'm supposed to prioritize serving people who can't pay me back, how in the world am I supposed to do that? Notice Jesus' answer. 
Final word in the passage, verse 14. This is key. This is the payoff. For, that's the same way as telling you, here's the reason, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know that's a reference to the last day. It's a reference to the final judgment of God. And that's the answer, brothers and sisters. It's the promise of the last day that enables citizens of the kingdom to live in this world as though this world is not our home. It's the promise of the kingdom of God. When I trust that my standing with Christ is secure and that my citizenship in heaven is firmly fixed, then I'm able to serve those who cannot serve me back. I'm able to give away all that I have without fear. Then I'm able to love my enemies. Then I'm able to choose a life of humility. Why? Because I'm just more spiritually minded than other people? Nope. Because I simply exerted the moral willpower necessary to live a sacrificial life? Uh Uh-uh. Then why am I able to live this way? Because the last day becomes so real. The reality of the last day, indeed the promise of the last day, is so powerful, so compelling, it shapes and sustains me today. It's bringing the future into the present by faith and saying, I'm going to live this way. This is how the kingdom of God works. This is how the kingdom of God works. When we say that the kingdom of God has broken in to this age, we mean in part that it's broken in through our lives. God's rule and reign are seen in the world today where? Through the redeemed and transformed lives of the church. We don't look for a geographical place. We don't look for an institution. We look for people who live in a way that the world cannot understand. That's how the kingdom of God works. Listen, friends, I could preach this passage in a different way. I could have preached this passage in a way that was essentially twisting your arm to do more service in the world. I could have preached this passage in a way that was essentially a guilt trip, saying, look at how bad these religious leaders are. Don't be like them. I could preach it that way. But that's not the gospel of the kingdom. At best, that's moralism dressed up in religious sounding language. And it'll last about 12 minutes before you get tired of it. Instead, I want us to think about these verses as much as we can from Jesus' perspective. And Jesus' perspective is this. God's kingdom... His rule and His reign. God's kingdom is more glorious and more real than anything this world can offer. And in that kingdom, there is nothing more satisfying for the Christian than to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. By faith, the reality of the last day becomes real today so that I'm able to live in a way that points to that day. There's a limit to preaching, and I've just reached it. That's it. So should we live humbly? Yes. Should we serve sacrificially? Yes. How do we do that? Not by the exertion of our own moral fortitude, but by the the promise of the last day, the glorious day when God receives His children into His presence. That day is coming. It's the most real of all days. That day is coming. And by embracing that future day in faith, we receive the grace needed to live today in the reality of the kingdom that is to come. 
That's the correction, number three. To seek God's kingdom, you must live for the promise of the last day. Let's try to sum this up at the end. Biblical spirituality is not a self-oriented quest. We are not free to seek God on our own terms. We are not seeking to have every person be their own priest. Instead, we seek God on God's terms. Submitting to the authority of Jesus, embracing the way of humility, and living today in light of the last day. So as we close this morning, we pray that God's kingdom would come. Particularly that His kingdom would come to occupy our hearts and minds in such a way that we live today for the future glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, our our best efforts are woefully insufficient. And so we plead and pray and beg you now to come and bear fruit from your word. Father, take your truth and plant it deep in our hearts. Renew our minds, Father, through your word. God, bear fruit, we pray. We ask you to help us to see where we do not live in accords with your word and how we can embrace by faith the future glory that is ours in a way that makes a difference today in how we live for the sake of your name. Oh God, come and help us. Please bear fruit from your word. We plead with you. We pray in Jesus' name.